time now for the nationally syndicated radio show, The World of Lori Zook. And now, here she is, the smart, the sexy, the savvy, divine Miss C. Welcome to my world, the world of Lori Zook. I just love doing the show, and being a musician, I, I love to interview musicians, especially really well-known ones, and we're doing another Masters and Legends music special today. And I've got a great saxophonist, Ron Apria. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Good to be here. Well, I want to talk about your life, and you know, we're going to kind of do a, a profile on you, and for our listeners, we're going to play some of, of your music. Uh, we're going to you know, play in between. You'll hear some of Ron's music. But Ron, what made you, I like to ask this to every musician, what made you want to become a musician? You know, um, people, people ask me that all the time, and um, I, I try to trace that back, and um, uh, I, I think there are a couple of things that, uh, that inspired me to, to play an instrument, and uh, one of them was uh, 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 my mom um, taking me to, to these live live shows at the time. When I was a kid, they had the Roxy Theater and the Paramount Theater. They had these live uh, stage shows between movies. And, uh, and my, my mom would, uh, would take me to these things. She, she loved music, and she was a decent singer herself. Um, so she would take me as, as a kid. I was probably five years old, six years old at the time, I guess. And uh, I, I was so impressed. I can, I can still see Louis Prima's big band up there you know, <laughs> on the stage playing, and, and I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's, you know, the, the excitement, the electricity. I'm thinking, boy, would I love to do that. Uh, that, that was one of the things. And then there was another part. I, I, I think uh, I was raised in, in an area of, of Astoria, a, a kind of an um, um, a integrated area, and behind my house was a, was a Baptist church. And um, right, you know, maybe 40 or 50 feet from my kitchen window was the church. And in the summertime, um, you know, my window would be open, and, and of course their windows were open in the church, and, and, and the choir would be singing all day long on Sunday. And I would sit by the window, uh, basically getting goosebumps listening to this great choir, you know, jazz-influenced singing and, and, just, and just good music. So those are the two things that stick out in, in my mind is inspiring me to want to do it, you know, to, to, to you know. Yeah, it, it's interesting when I, you know, speak to different musicians, everyone almost says the same thing. There was, it was as if they knew there was something that gave them chills. They just knew that that was, that was something that they wanted to be involved in. Um, do you play other instruments other than saxophone? Oh, yeah, I played the saxophone, clarinet, flute. And, and I'm a very weak piano player. <laughs> and I played piano basically to, to help me with my, my writing, you know, my arranging and composing and stuff like that, and, you know, just being able to hear chords. But, uh, yeah, I, I do play the doubles. I never got into a double read, but I, I do play, um, you know, the, the, the three important woodwinds, which is the saxophone, clarinet, and flute. I also play, you know, of course, the alto, tenor, baritone, soprano. Now, how old were you when you actually started playing? Did you, and did you, what did you start on? Which instrument? Okay, this is a funny story. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 I cringe sometimes when I tell a story. But, uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, we used to watch, uh, the, uh, my family uh, was in love <laughs> with the Lawrence Welk show, and I almost hate to say that, too. 
but uh, but uh, the part of that show that I always loved was when Pete Fountain would come out. He was always featured with the Lawrence Welk Orchestra, and Pete was a wonderful jazz clarinet player. And uh, and I thought, wow, I'd love to play that instrument. He just he just knocked me out. I, I don't know. I, I was probably maybe eight or ten years old at the time, something like that. And uh, and, and that that kind of you know hit me as the instrument that I'd like to play. And uh, I thought it was, believe it or not, I thought it was called a saxophone, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so when my music, uh, uh, my music teacher uh, in, in middle school asked me uh, if I, uh, well, asked the class basically if they wanted to, um, they had some instruments uh, that they were renting and, would, uh, and they had some saxophones and, and, and trumpets and trombones and so forth. And I thought, saxophone, Pete, Pete Fountain. <laughs> well, yeah, so, that was your inspiration. So, so, so I raised my hand and he and he took me into a after class he took me into another room and he starts pulling all these big cases out of the closet you know, and uh, and I'm thinking like where's where's the saxophone and he was pulling saxophones out you know, <laughs> so too too embarrassed to tell him that I I didn't know what the heck I was doing uh, I took the saxophone home and uh, it was actually a C melody saxophone they used them in parades in them days uh, they don't even I don't even think they make them anymore but uh, I was playing a C melody saxophone. And I wasn't crazy about it, but I, I wanted to play music, so I took some lessons, and I, I eventually got into the band, and I sat next to a, an amazing alto player. And when I heard the sound of the alto saxophone, that, that, at that moment, I decided that was the instrument that I wanted to play. Now, I just have to share, because you made me kind of laugh hysterically back here, I actually have a C melody. I have a con C melody. And it's it's my favorite horn, but most people have no clue what it is, because I think they were used as military horns back in the, like in the 1920s. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I was told that they use them a lot in parades, uh, but I I know very little about uh, why they ever made a, a horn like that. It was kind of a an in between horn that, uh, yeah. that that had that had a very you know kind of a weird sound. You know, it didn't sound like an alto or a tenor. It was in between. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was totally different. It was totally different. Well, yeah. you know, when when well, it, so you started in school. Now, did you have primarily school as for your musical training did you go on an education for music did you just play so well you didn't need any additional you know training i always had i always had i've had a string of great teachers i always from the beginning i always believed that uh, that the teacher that that a good teacher was was really important i started with a a guy named uh, ted grant who used to do shows at radio city and his uh and his studio was right across the street from radio city and that was my first private lesson and uh, I studied with him for a couple of years, and then I, uh, a friend of mine at, at school said, you have to check out Bobby Tricarico. Bobby Tricarico was a tenor player who was, uh, had just gotten off the road with uh, Ray Anthony's band and, uh, and also did some touring with, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, well, anyway, Louis Prima's band. Okay. So Bobby, uh, Bobby was teaching, and, and he lived in Astoria, not too far from where I lived. And uh, I went down and visited Bobby, and uh, I was I was knocked out with, with not only his playing, but what a nice guy he was, and what a great teacher he was, and he had a, a ton of good good saxophone players studying with him, and, uh, and was turning out one killer player after another. So Bobby was the guy I studied with Bobby for for many years, and uh, he became almost like my my father. I mean, I, I got very close to Bobby. He became a great friend and and mentor, and uh, and uh, and then following him. Uh, I remember studying clarinet with a guy named Leon Roshanoff, great teacher, and Harold Bennett. Uh, I studied flute with him, and then later I, I, I paid a visit to Phil Woods and, and uh, picked his brain a little bit. Lee Konitz and Frank Foster. So I, I always had like really, really great teachers around me and, and, and helping me with my stuff. You know. 
Right now, how old were you when you started playing professionally? How did that happen? Well, I don't know how it happened. It just <laughs> seems to happen. You know, you're playing, you're playing in rehearsal bands, and uh, I had my own rehearsal band, and um, uh, and then I met Frank Foster, and Frank Foster uh, became a lifelong friend of mine, and uh, and and picked up where Bobby left off, became uh, became my 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 mentor and almost like my dad as well. He was with Basie's band, and he was a great arranger. And uh, he um, took me under his wing. I met him at Birdland, and we became great friends. And he would invite me up his house and and uh, and and just share his music with me. And uh, I was you know, pretty pretty surprised because I had a rehearsal band. And I was I asked Frank if he had any old arrangements that he might uh, want to contribute to my rehearsal band. Um, and uh, never expecting him to lay all his new scores on me. I mean, he just started you know, dumping all his music on me. And I would go home and copy them and bring the score back, and then he would give me another couple, and I would copy those. And I wound up with uh, with almost every piece of music that Frank ever wrote. So because of having such strong music and, and you know, all, all those basic classics, it attracted all the good players in New York. So I'm, I'm kind of going around a horn here. But, the, uh, but being around all these wonderful players um, leads to leads to work and uh you know you, you you know you're playing with 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 new york's finest players and that leads to gigs and before i know the, the baritone player uh, richie bars asks me if i want to do a tour with les elgard so that's how i got into the business basically it started with my own band and then frank foster contributing his music to my band meeting great players and then going from there, and before I knew it, I was uh, I was touring with a, with a whole bunch of bands. Right. So it sounds like you had a group. You were talented. You had a group of talented people, and then a lot of it from there were the connections. Yeah. Okay. So getting established as a professional kind of came through that network. But let's talk about who who were some of the people that inspired you musically. I know you you had your teachers, but were there other people that inspired you musically? Yeah, I was uh, uh, back in the sixties. Uh, well, I think originally uh, uh, Johnny Hodges uh, was was the guy with Duke Ellington's band. Uh, I I just love Johnny Hodges playing, and I love I, I had I have all those Duke Ellington albums, uh, and um, he he was the guy for me uh, during that period. That was back in late '50s, early '60s, and uh, uh, but I, I guess later on in the '60s I I fell in love with with Coltrane's playing, and I I started leaning more toward the. Uh, the outside high energy style that was that was happening back in the '60s, and I was listening a lot to Jackie McQueen and um, uh, Eric Dolphy, and uh, you know, of course, Charlie Parker, Charlie, you know, Charlie Mariano, and Phil Woods, or some of the other alto plays that I really liked. But uh, in the '60s, I was really uh, consumed with uh, high energy playing, and I was listening a lot to, to Coltrane, uh, you know, which was a little odd because I'm an alto player and I was listening to all these all these albums by by this great tenor player, but I just uh, I, I just was totally, totally knocked out with that whole that whole concept, and of course Frank Foster, who was kind of kind of on the same um, you know on the same track with Coltrane. Uh, I did a lot of playing with Frank and Frank's big band, and, and uh, Frank Frank Foster's big band was one of the few big bands that that was doing that kind of playing. It, it was pretty it was pretty high energy, and he would open things up and it would. Um, it, it, it opened the arrangements up and let everybody blow and it got pretty crazy. I mean, he had Elvin Jones on drums and and uh, Major Holly on bass and all these guys and and it just I mean it was just so it was the first, only big band I ever played with that was playing outside music. You know? Yeah, when you're playing with a group of musicians in a, in a band and you have a lot of so you know people get up to do their solos, is it more of a team? Do you feel it's more of a team type concept or is it more you know is it more ego related? 
I, you know, I hope it's a team kind of thing. When I'm when I'm playing, I, I I'm careful about who I surround myself with. Uh, of course, if I'm hired for a gig, I have no, you know, you know, I have no choice over who the people are. But when I'm putting my music, uh, my bands together, I try to I try to pick the people that uh, that that are on the same frequency as I am, and, and I try to pick people that that we can have a musical conversation with. Uh, uh, the style of music uh, that, that that I play requires that, and and if, if we're not all in tune, if we're not playing and bouncing off each other and feeding off each other, uh, uh, picking up a, a rhythm pattern, for example, that the drum might be playing, or 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 an extended chord that the piano player jumps on, and, and you know, and you have these little musical conversations. If that's not happening, well, then for me, it's not working. You know. Right, gotcha. Now we're going to play. We're going to play an audio clip, and then when we come back from hearing the clip, I want you to talk a little bit about it. Here we go. Ron, that's so beautiful. Jeff and I are here in the studio going, wow, we don't want to turn it off. So <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that audio clip. Okay, well, that, um, of course, is Gordon Jenkins' is goodbye. And um, I, um, that, was, uh, that was recorded um, for my friend Frank Foster, who uh, passed away a few years back. And uh, I, I had written that arrangement uh, to play at his memorial service, but... I was out of town, uh, you know, when when, the, when that service happened. So I thought, uh, you know what? I think I'm going to record this and uh, and dedicate it to Frank Foster. So that's that's what that was. Uh, that's what that recording is about. It's it's dedicated to my my lifelong my my five my five decade pal and mentor Frank Foster. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's very emotional. You can just hear it in your in your playing. So I can hear like the importance. I guess is what I'm trying to say of, of that music. Um, talk a little bit about you know some of the the people you performed with and where have you performed and have you traveled? You mean some of the bands that I played with and stuff like that? Yep. Oh well, um, well Lionel Hampton. I, I I was on. I joined Lionel Hampton's band in 1969 when it was a small band. It was you know, just three horns, alto, tenor, and trumpet. And uh, I played with Hamp's band. I, I did bunches of tours with his band from '69 through around '74. Um, and um, I'm trying to think. About, even prior to that, um, a couple of years before that, I, I did I did some touring with Woody Herman's band. Uh, I was basically uh, just filling in with with that band. Um, they were in transition, and that great band with Sal Mystico and uh, Jay Canner and Bill Chase and all those guys. 
that band was was in transition and uh, they were they were stuck for a couple of tenor plays. So Eddie Eddie Daniels and I flew down to Baltimore and joined Woody's band. And I stayed on the band for a couple of months until they until they uh, were able to fill fill that chair. So I played with that band. I toured with other bands, Elgard's band. I played lead alto with Les's band and uh, Billy May, Buddy Rich, uh, not, not Buddy, Buddy Morrow, and uh, Tito Puente's band. I loved playing with Tito Puente's band. So, you know, uh, Skitch Henderson, uh, whatever. I was bouncing from band to band for, for quite a few years. And then I did a tour with a uh, a, a gospel, a small big man with uh, um, um, two saxophones, a couple of trombones, and three trumpets, and a, and a choir. And... Um, and Nat Adley uh, was hired to, to to join. You know, he joined in, in uh, and toured with us. And uh, it was a big kick for me playing, uh, playing, touring, and playing with Nat Adley, who was a great guy. He was just a sweetheart of a, of, of a person. And uh, and I got to play with him at, at the Apollo Theater. One of the highlights of my life was playing with Nat at the Apollo Theater. We we did his his famous uh, tune, work song, and I played Cannonball's part on that. And it was just such a kick, you know, working with Nat. Um, but those those are some of the people I've, I've played with. I've done some Broadway stuff. I did a show called Song of Singapore. It was an off-Broadway show that was really cool. Uh, a lot of good players. Earl May was playing bass, and uh, Oliver Jackson was on drums. It was a very strong musical. Um, so, I, you know, those are some of the things I've done. Yeah, you're pretty diverse. You've done. It sounds like you've done a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you, yeah. I wasn't. Uh, uh, I wasn't specializing. I, you know, for, you know, to, to just. Um, Make a living playing jazz, I thought would would be a little tough, and uh, I thought playing the doubles and Bobby Tricarico always ingrained that into me that that you really have to be versatile, and uh, he prepared me with with the with the flute and the clarinet, and uh, of course Bobby was one of the great studio players. Um, did, did a lot of movies. In fact, at one point, every movie that came out of California, Bobby was on air somewhere playing oboe or or something, you know. So uh, so Bobby kind of trained me to be versatile, so I was able to handle different things. I even wound up for a while doing subs on, on, on the circus. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's, that had to be really interesting. That was, that, it really was. You know what? It was a fun, it was a fun band, but the, better than, uh, you know, it was a great band. I mean, all New York plays had a lot of energy. Uh, but uh, uh, it was in January. In, in January, you know, <laughs> freezing. Hit, you know, so so I appreciated that gig, and uh, uh, you know, so you know, I I was trying to, I I would take almost anything to Campbell. I didn't do a whole lot of club dates. I was never into the club date scene. Um, but I, you know, I bounced around and, and toured with bands and did various gigs that 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 made sense to me musically. You know. Yeah. Now you and I, we have a mutual friend, Glenn Zatola. Yeah. And yes, and and Glenn asked me to send you his regards. I love Glenn. What a I am a big fan of Glenn's. I got to tell you, he is such a an amazing amazing player. He is he he he's 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 incredible. And now he I ask every musician this question because this is something Glenn and I have discussed at length. But he always talks about musicians being able to speak or sing through their horn. I want to ask you what does that mean to you? Oh, <laughs> the loaded questions. Speak, yeah. Speak, speak to my own. Well, I don't know. I guess we all do it. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, if I could sing, I probably wouldn't be a saxophone player. <laughs> so, so that that's all I can say. My wife is is a wonderful um, um, jazz vocalist, and uh, and so we we uh, you know I I, I get my uh, my my vocal stuff you know through her, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I try to express it. You know, I, I, a lot of people, you know, say it sounds like I'm speaking when I'm playing. I don't really know what that is. I, I know Charlie Mariano was asked that one time, and uh, 
so they said to him, like, you have a, a, some kind of a, a, a sadness in, in your sound. And, and he said something like, yeah, he says, he says, it's a little melancholy. He says, I have no control over that. He says, it's just there. And, uh, and uh, you know, when, you, when you're being honest and when you're playing from your heart, it, it, just, it just it comes through, you know. And, uh, and you just said something really key because I, you, you know that I, I also teach music. And so the thing to me is, is the from the heart words that you just used because there are there are you know kids when they start playing for example they're not necessarily playing from the heart some of them are born with it and the rest of them they have to try to learn it and some will probably never learn it but it's it's that feeling part i think that you nailed it right there yeah well you can't teach that part you know i've been i have private students too and some of them just come in here and it's there and uh, you know it's, it's stuff that you can't teach uh either you have a passion for music uh, and you have a passion for expression um right. uh, you know uh, or 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 it's not going to you know it's, you can't the teacher can't put that there right. i mean we can we can bring it out we can we can help them develop it and get that get that passion into their playing but if it's not there to begin with i'm not sure there's anything we can do about that You're right that's just playing the notes off the paper yeah Okay. Now, you've also worked with a lot of big names. You've worked with Billy Joel. You've mentioned Lyle Hampton. Uh, you've worked with Chick Corea. So maybe share a, share a story. Um, no, that, I'm, I, I hate to do this to you, Lori. I love you. But uh, I never worked with Billy Joel. Oh, okay. I thought I read it on your site. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. And uh, what was the other one you mentioned? That uh, Chick Corea and Lyle Hampton? Yeah, no, I, I, I learned, work with I, of course I worked with Lionel Hampton, but okay. not Chick Corea. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but Lionel, Lionel Hampton, well, I, as I told you before, we, I started playing with him in 1969, and, uh, and we stayed friends up until the day he, he died. Um, uh, you know, he, he, he loved, he loved uh, uh, Angela and my son Matt. We used to go up his house and in, his, in his late later years, when, after he had suffered a couple of strokes, uh, he wasn't very mobile, and he would spend most of his life uh, basically sitting sitting in his apartment, and he'd do an occasional gig. But for the most most part, he'd be sitting around his apartment and watching TV or or listening to music. So Angela and Matt and I would we would go up to his house, and uh, Angela found something that he really loved, which is peaches and cream cake. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she would she would bake these peaches and cream cakes, and we would go hang out with them and spend a day with them, and and bring CDs up there and. and and, uh, and and listen to music, and I remember uh, after we did Angela's first album, uh, we we brought it up to his apartment. And we were sitting there listening to it, and he we really really liked it. I said, "So so, what do you think, Hamp?" I said, "You want to do another one?" I said, "Then uh, you know, with, with Angela and my band." He said, "Yeah." And and with, at that, as soon as he said yeah, and he was down for it, I that's it. I went home. I I started writing music, and I and I and I put an album together called Swinging with Legends. And uh, it's my 16-piece band, of course, featuring Angela uh, on vocals. And I had uh, the guests, the legends were Lionel Hampton, Frank Foster, and Lou Tobacco. And it turned out to be a, an album that I'm so proud of. I produced a whole bunch of, probably 15 or 20 albums over the years. And that's still my favorite album of, of all, you know. Now, that's the one that had eight Grammy nominations? Yeah. Yeah, it, that... it, it, it got a bunch of... And in them days, there was, there was no internet. That was back in 98. So it was really hard to uh, interact with NARIS members, so it never really got a, a, nom a nomination, but it, it was entered in, in, in eight different categories. It yeah. got a lot of, lot, of, lot of attention, got a lot of radio play. Yeah, that's, that's very impressive. Well, I want you to stay with us. We're going to cut to a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. 
highly competitive and hectic world is fraught with dishonesty and challenges. Critical decisions must be made on a daily basis with accuracy when substantial assets are at risk. When you are confronted with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Sharpline Investigations, statewide experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Sharpline's professionals work with clients to conduct interviews, deep background investigations, and develop facts and intelligence related to litigation. When circumstances require confidential and expert fact-finding, turn to Sharpline Investigations, the statewide leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit sharplineinvestigations.com or call 855-394-0042. Do you suffer from back, neck, or body pain? Do you suffer from migraines or have jaw or face pain? Has conventional medicine failed you? Were you injured or in an accident? Call chiropractic physician Dr. Dan Maddock at 813-935-1664. Dr. Dan has helped thousands of patients gain relief for more than 30 years. Dr. Dan is caring, gentle, and takes his time with each patient. He's also a past president of the International Craniopathic Society, a special certification of only 300 chiropractors worldwide. Dr. Dan helps patients from the neck up and the neck down. Dr. Dan accepts most insurance plans. Don't continue to live in pain. Call 813-935-1664. 64 today. That's 813-935-1664 and get on track to better health. Are you looking for an affordable way to advertise to thousands of consumers nationally? If you own a business and didn't think you could afford radio advertising, you need to call me, Lori Zook, host of the nationally syndicated radio show, The World of Lori Zook. My show reaches thousands of people on 29 AM and FM stations nationwide, as well as through the internet. Additionally, your commercials will also be heard on my podcasts and throughout social media sites. Don't wait another minute. Call me at 813-777-4908, 813-777-4908, and let me bring your message to the nation and help you gain more exposure. Hi, this is Lori Zook, radio host from the world of Lori Zook. I was so nervous about getting tattooed. But after doing my due diligence and checking out companies and artists, I had my tattoos done by Justin Dubow of Suncoast Tattoos. He is knowledgeable and artistic, and he gave me a beautiful tattoo, and he put me at ease before, during, and after the process. I just love my new tattoo. Go get your tattoo at Suncoast Tattoos. Call them at 727-575-7935 today. That's 727 575-7935 or go to suncoasttattoos.net.
welcome back to the world of Lori Zook. Today we've been doing the Masters and Legends special, and my special guest is saxophonist Ron Apria. Apria, let me say your last name correctly. And Ron, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier um, about your wife Angela De Niro, so I want to talk about that. Uh, how did you How did you guys meet? Okay, well, I was on tour with uh, with Skitch Henderson's band, and I was rooming with uh, another saxophone player named uh, Steve Greenfield. And when I come off <clears throat> when I come off that tour, uh, I got hired to do a a, a gig with a, a local band here on Long Island, a dance band. And I'm sitting in the in the saxophone section, and Angela's the singer with the band, and she's sitting right in front of my chair. And I'm talking with, with the saxophone player alongside of me, and he, he was asking me about the Skitch Henderson tour, and I, and I mentioned that I was rooming with Steve Greenfield. And um, Angela turns around and says, I know Steve Greenfield. We went to school together. <laughs> so, so, so that's how the conversation with Angela started. And, and uh, of course, uh, we, we introduced ourselves to each other, and we spent most of that night, you know, between you know, between um, sets, hanging out and, and chatting, and uh, and that's how our, our relationship started. I wound up playing with that band for a while, and uh, I wasn't crazy about the band, but I was crazy about Angela, so I stayed with the band. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good story. Um, so when you when you perform now, does she come out and sing with you? We do a lot of work together. In fact, uh, I would say over over the past decade, most of my gigs are with are with Angela. You know, most of the gigs that I'm hired for, uh, not the freelance gigs, but the gigs that I'm booked for are usually with, with her. We do, uh, we do. I don't know if, if, I guess you're familiar with Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane, they do that alto voice thing. Well, we do a lot of that. And uh, and uh, we we were actually hired to um, to do a festival in France, which was really cool. Um, and uh, they booked us to, to, to work with a, a, an amazing Parisian all-star 16-piece band. And um, you know, I, I shipped my music over there, so the band was uh, was totally ready for for us when we got there. And uh, and my my son Matt, who's who's like 16 and was you know, was a, a studying violinist at the time, and, and playing really well, we brought him with us, and, and we actually put him in the show. So it was kind of a kick. But uh, yeah, most of my most of my work has been uh, uh, with with Angela. All right, now you're talking about your son. So you know, this is interesting to me because here you you've got the mother and father. Are, are both musicians so talk a little bit about your son was he born into it yeah i think so <laughs> <laughs> i hate to say it but uh, i mean there was no way he was gonna get, you know, get he could escape huh <laughs> no no escape uh angela i remember angela was doing shows uh we were doing the borscht belt for a while i, I, I had written a, a, a kind of a kind of a commercial kind of a hip uh, commercial show that that, that that we were doing the, the Catskill Mountains with, and uh, and she was uh, four months pregnant at the time. <laughs> you know? So so he heard uh, it. He heard it all the way back in the womb. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, it started before he was born, actually. But uh, yeah, uh, but he he uh, he decided he wanted to be a violinist. He he was he studied he started on piano, and he was a pretty amazing piano player. Uh, but his passion that uh, kind of changed uh, he, midstream, and uh, he thought, uh, "Geez, he wanted to play the violin." And, and kind of like me, they were offering violin lessons in school, uh, in middle school, and um, and he took a violin home and just fell in love with it. And uh, he's become a pretty pretty amazing violinist. And he, in fact, he he graduated uh, Eastman a few years back, and he's been doing pretty well around town. He's done a couple of movies, uh, uh, scores, and uh, a couple of record dates. Mm -hmm. Mitch Froman, he did an album with saxophonist Mitch Froman. 
and he's done some studio stuff, and he's uh, and and he's a strong player. And I'm thinking, I'm going to put him on this project and turn him loose because now I want to hear people. I want him to play some solos, you know, and get him out there. And um, and uh, he, he, you know. He came through, and he's, I think he sounded really, really pretty amazing on this project. You know? Yeah, and, and Eastman's a very prestigious school. Now, does he play, is he classically trained, or is he playing jazz on the violin? Well, he's, he's, he's classically trained, but uh, he's not going to escape playing jazz, you know. <laughs> it's, a fa- uh, it's a family thing, it sounds like here. But when we, put this, when we put the string section together for this project, I told him, make sure you get, you get string players that, that, that understand the jazz concept. You know, and uh, and he did, and uh, the string section was was pretty amazing. You know, and uh, they 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 knew the feel, the exact feel that I that I wanted you know to play with, and and they and they nailed it. I think. Now I I understand that you recorded with a band at the Smithsonian, and your recordings were archived there. Yeah, when I was touring with him, uh, the Smithsonian Institute decided to, uh, and it was a great thing that they did. They, they caught all these great band leaders while they were still alive. And they were bringing all all the great bands on there, one band at a time. And and they would have one week, uh, Duke Ellington's band would come down and do a concert, and they would record it and put it in their archives. And then Basie's band and uh, uh, Buddy Rich's band, Woody Herman's band, and Ham's band, and I don't know who else. But but uh, I remember being a little bugged that 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 they they filled in uh, our day off. You know, it was supposed to be our day off, and and all of a sudden Bill Titone says, uh, you know, we put this date on on your schedule. I'm thinking, what a, what a bummer, you know, because uh, <laughs> we were doing a lot of one-nighters, and I was looking forward to that night off. But that that date, date that he filled in was the Smithsonian Institute, and um, I remember going down there with a, with, with bummed out. But as it turned out to be one of the, one of the one of the one of the best gigs I've ever played, because the, we went down there and we did record, and uh, of course I was featured on a couple of the things. It was still his small band, so there was a lot of blowing, and. Uh, and so my solos uh, are in their archives down there somewhere. I've never heard them, but uh, they tell me they're down there. Yeah, that's that's got to be an honor to yeah. be archived there. I would think. Yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I, I feel pretty privileged, really. Uh, as it turns out, uh, I remember during the time some of these. Sometimes when you're in the middle of these things, they they don't feel so good. And when you look back, it's like, wow, glad I did it. <laughs> yeah, that's I know that's a, that's a good story. I want to pl- actually I want to play another audio clip. So listen in here. Now, Ron, that, that is from your John Lennon tribute, so let's talk about that. Uh, well, that's Norwegian Wood, and I'm playing soprano on that. And uh, I kind of really, I'm listening to that as what 
you know, uh, as you're playing it. And um, I added that, that little flute line in there, and I think the flute and soprano is such a pretty sound, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's Mark Schwartz, by the way, playing uh, playing flute. And uh, he's a, a young monster on the scene today <laughs> and, uh, and a, former, a former student of mine. He actually studied with me and has... Uh, because he has his Eastman degree, and then he went on to get his, his master's, and he, and uh, he's out on the New York scene now, you know, um, you know, really, really making a lot of noise and playing really well. So that's Mark Schwartz. But uh, regarding that album, uh, that's an album that I dedicated to John Lennon uh, in 1974. I recorded with with John on a on a project called Walls and Bridges, and he had a, a five horn section that uh, that he referred to as the Little Big Horns. And uh, I was playing alto, and Steve Medeo was playing trumpet, and um, and the jazz great tenor player Frank Vicari, and and Howard Johnson, another wonderful jazz player, played the baritone and bass sax, and Bobby Keys played tenor. So there were five of us, and uh, it was a pretty interesting date, uh, since there was no music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I read that on your site, and I'm going, how how, how did you how did you do, how did you I mean. I know you're all professionals, but how do you do that? Because it sounds like John Lennon just said, hey, play, <laughs> and that's it. That's it. That's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's pretty much the way it was. You know, well, Steve Medeo hired me for, for this gig, and Steve uh, is, is a great friend of mine, and I know Steve for, for a lot of years, and we played in a lot of bands together before he got into the rock scene, and we both lived on Long Island. And Steve, Steve hired, hired me for the gig, and... Uh, uh, it was it, that's a funny story too because when he hired me for the gig it was the strangest hiring that, that I, I've ever been involved with he called me up and we were talking and we talked for 10 minutes uh, before he even mentioned the session um, and uh, and then he said what, what are you doing tomorrow and I said um, well I think I'm, I'm okay what's going on he said well I got a re- little recording session I don't even know if he said recording session he said I got a session and I, I wasn't sure if it was a jam session <laughs> <laughs> what kind of session <laughs> right record, what the heck kind of session was it but I, it, I, it couldn't have been anything important because it was so so far into the conversation uh, and it was so casual and then we did and that was and I said okay and then we kept talking and then before we hung up uh, I, I asked him who was the session with and he says oh yeah it's with John Lennon you know so that's how that whole thing came about <laughs> that's, that, that's a, I think that's a great story. So you guys basically had to do straight improv. How did you make that happen? Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, for Steve, it was, it, was, it was par for the course. You know, when, when he played with uh, uh, the rock bands, he, he toured with all those great bands. He toured with Stevie Wonder and Rolling Stones and, um, you know, Butterfield Blues Band and all those, all those great rock bands. Um, and, and they were all doing like head charts. They were doing. They were making these things up on the spot. Um, and uh, may, maybe they had rehearsals. I don't know. But they didn't have music. And that's kind of the way this session uh, was going to be run. But I didn't know it. If I had known, I probably would have told Steve, "No, get somebody else." Uh, you know, first of all, it's it's a, it's a new genre for me. You know, I'm not a rock player, and uh, and, and I'm not I'm not going to sit there and, and fake. You know, rock lines with, with four other horn players and, 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 uh, right. and make a fool out of myself. So I decided to. Uh, I took the gig not knowing, and when I got to the studio, it was too late to back out. <laughs> so I asked I asked Steve if uh, if I could take a peek at the at the book, meaning the music, and um, and Steve uh, looks at me with this funny look on his face, and and he says, "No, there's there's there's, there's no no arrangements." I said, "Come on, man, let me see the book." I thought, "Sure, he's kidding." <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know, stop being stop being funny with me, Steve. 
they, they just threw it together and said and, and said play and I, I and you I, and you did now where did you actually record did, did uh, John Lennon had had a you know a home with a recording studio or you went to a studio no we all had record plant big big studio in the city great studio actually okay and uh, and uh, um it was, you know, so Steve saw that I was getting a little panicky, uh, and uh, I don't know about <laughs> panicky, but a little uneasy, let's put it that way. And he says, no, don't, don't worry about it, Ron. He says, everything's cool. He says, just listen to me. He says, and, uh, he says it gets easier as you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so, so uh, you know, it's, uh, don't worry about being in a, in a different genre, and don't worry about not having arrangements or, the, or the, everything being in the key of E and D and G and whatever, all those, you know, rock and roll keys. So uh, it was a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable, you know what? But it did get easier, and uh, and 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 the panic kind of kind of went away uh, after after the first session, and I started getting comfortable with with, with the flow of stuff. And, so know. that so I got to jump in here because that leads me, you know, I, I I did my research on you, Ron, and so I read quite a bit. When you work with John Lennon, what did he mean when he asked if there were any secrets? <laughs> well, well, secrets meant mistakes, you know. If he liked something. He would always check with us to make sure that it was musically okay, you know. Um, uh, maybe he didn't, maybe he trusted Arias more than his own or something, I don't know. Because I know he had tremendous respect for us. He was a great, by the way, he was a great, great guy to work with. He was fun to be around. He was so cool. He was uh, very respectful. He was uh, 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 very sensitive and, and, and just a, 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 one of the nicest leaders I've ever, ever worked for. Uh, so it was uh, that that part was really cool, and that 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 made it, that made the, the stress a little more bearable too, you know. So um, he would he would basically sit there and ask us if he liked what we played. He would say, "I like it." Any secrets? And if we said no, then he'd say, "Okay, that's a take." Gotcha. Now he gave you something that was probably worth a lot of money, and it's sentimental. Do you want to share that story? Yeah. Well, <laughs> as we mentioned, there was there were no arrangements, but he did have lead sheets and. Um, uh, I, I'm thinking, like, it's probably a good idea to, 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 to take the lead sheets, make some copies for, for the guys, and uh, that way at least we know what the hell key we're in, and, uh, and, and we know a little bit about the song, where the melody is, and, and that kind of thing. So uh, I, went, I went into another one of the rooms up at Record Plant, and I was uh, photostatting the music so that everybody can have a copy of the lead sheet. And, and John comes walking in the room and uh, takes the music out, and he sticks his face in the photostat machine and hits the button. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and, and lit up the room. <laughs> I mean, those lights. I'm thinking, what the heck is he doing? <laughs> he's he's photostatting his ca- his face. He's gonna, yeah, but he's got. He's, I mean, you can go blind doing that. <laughs> so uh, he still had his glasses on. He put his face on the plate there, and and, and his two photostats come sliding out, and uh, you can see his nose is a little flat from being on the thing, but his glasses are still on. And uh, and he and he hands one to me and he hands one to Steve and he says, "Here, hang on to these." He says, "Someday they're gonna be worth a lot of money." <laughs> I'll bet. Do you still have it? I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, in fact, in fact, for this project, uh, uh, what we did, my wife actually took that and um, and we made copies of it and we put them on T-shirts, you know, for uh, <laughs> for, for for the Lennon project, and uh, we gave them away as as gifts for the people who donated to the project because we were on this Kickstarter thing, you know. Right. Now, I know that you're donating a dollar for each CD sale going to uh, aidforkids.org. So what does that organization provide for? Actually, it's, a, it's $2 for each CD, and, and it's, for, okay. uh, str- it's for struggling kids worldwide, uh, a, a, an amazing organization that, that we, we did a lot of research. And uh, 
uh, and we interviewed a, a bunch of different charities, and these people uh, are, are just doing a phenomenal job with with helping kids worldwide. And uh, 98% of, of all their donations goes directly to the kids. They have uh, they have very little overhead because all their workers are volunteers, and um, and we we really like the idea that that the money goes right to the kids. And uh, it's it's aidforkids.org. Uh, if anybody wants to check out their site, uh, it's, it's it's an amazing group of people. In fact, we're going to be up there. They're based up in Maine, and uh, we were just on the phone earlier today. And uh, I'm not sure the date yet, but we're going to be doing a performance up there. You know, uh, in in Maine. Now, let me ask you: How did you for, for the CD? How did you select the songs? And maybe talk a little bit about the songs that you selected for the CD for the John Lennon tribute. It was a a long process, uh, Lori. Uh, uh, I have so, I have everything that, that they ever ever wrote. I bought all their music, <laughs> and I, I sat here literally for months because um, you know most of these tunes weren't in my repertoire. You know, they're not the tunes that that I would I would normally play. Some of them I had to learn, and I had to I had to play them and and, and get comfortable with them, and and try them at different tempos, and and try them at uh, different time signatures, and different change of key, or, or or put a different rhythm to it to see if I can make it. You know, make it fit into this the style that I'm that I'm, that I'm shooting for here. So it was a long. Uh, that was that was the hardest part of this whole project. Uh, that in the mixing, I guess, was was not equally as hard. But but picking the tunes uh, for me was very very uh, strenuous. Uh, I mean, it was it was nice. It was fun at the same time. But uh, but it was a long long process, and I had so many choices to pick from. And narrowing it down to twelve was. Uh, was uh, quite a challenge. Yeah, I would yeah. say that's a big selection and just trying to, you know, kind of pick a few to, to put on the CD. Now, I also want to talk, Ron, you play, you've played at the Trumpets Jazz Club. Talk about that. Well, yeah, for the past year and a half, um, I've been there with my big band. We do uh, the last Sunday of, of each month. Um, Enrico and Christine are the owners, and uh, we've become, well, we were working the club. Angela and I were working with our small group. You know, just rhythm section and, and Angela and myself, and uh, and we got friendly with Enrico and and Christine, the owners, and uh, and uh, they would come over here. We'd have barbecues together. We socialized with them, and uh, and we would go to their club often and and work work there as well. And uh, they were over here one time, and uh, I was playing a demo of my big band that was done quite a few years ago, and uh, they didn't know that I had all this music. They didn't know that I had a big band, all this Frank Foster and Neil Hefty stuff. But it was basically sitting there collecting dust because with the economy, and I just got tired of pushing the big band. It's just so hard to make any money. It's hard. It's just. It's hard. It's a hard thing to sell. So, uh, but, but they found out I had all this music, and we talked about it, and they and they kind of uh, inspired me a little bit to put the band back together and, and go in there and, and try a Sunday night. So we've been doing that uh, once a month, and it's been building, and it's been working real well. I have a, a, a an amazing band. All the best players in New York, New Jersey are doing it. And um, it's 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 just been a lot of fun. I'm having I'm having a ball, and I'm I'm happy that they that they kind of gave me that push, you know. You know, Trumpets Jazz Club is in Montclair, New Jersey. Yeah, correct. Okay, and then you know, for kind of a final question here, if there are aspiring musicians that are out there that are listening, what advice would you give them? And that's a big question, Ron. Yeah, I I I think. Um, the best thing I can tell them is uh, is to uh, first of all be able to separate the music business from music. Um, don't let the music business affect affect the music, um, uh, because it's easy to, it's 
that that can happen, and I've seen it happen to a lot of, a lot of my friends. Uh, always keep reminding yourself why you're playing. You know, I I I didn't, I didn't play the saxophone back uh, back in the sixth grade because I wanted to make a million dollars. I picked up the saxophone because I wanted to play music. And you got to keep reminding yourself uh, why why you're why you're playing music. Uh, if, if if the business isn't going well, don't don't let that affect your playing. And the other thing I I would suggest is that is that they create musical situations for themselves. Don't sit around and wait for the phone to ring. Um, I I do this all the time for years. I have I have uh, musicians come in, come down here to my studio and we play and we just play music. We compose new music and it's a it's an it's artsy fartsy kind of get together. And uh, we don't have the uh, uh, the distractions of of how many people are showing up and is the club owner bugged. You know, we just play and we have a good time and we 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 expand our uh, our you know our music and we and we stretch and. Uh, and, and I think I think young players need to do more of that. Don't don't come out of school and and uh, and, and and think you're gonna you know get out there and, and, and start doing shows and, and working and blah blah blah. You know I mean it's nice to try. I mean nothing wrong with trying, but but don't forget to play. Don't forget to keep playing music and, and have situations that with that that's that's pure art and, and it's designed just to help you stretch as a, as a player. Right, and now, last thing, we're going to go in just a second here, but your CD is also up for a Grammy, and I want to mention that. So if somebody wants to purchase your CD or they want to contact you, Ron, how do they do that? Okay, well, there's, there's two places. We're on CD Baby, and uh, and they can go to my website. It's ronapria.com. All right, very good. And Apria, A-P-R-E-A. Dot com, yeah. So there's, there's two different places where they can, they can buy the album. All right, well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I want to thank all my listeners for listening to The World of Lori Zook. And, Ron, we're going to go out with some of your music. Sounds good, Lori. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Matey. When it's time for lunch, when it's time for dinner, when the show's over, when the day's over, when it's time to chill, where do we go? Over to Naughty Nancy's Food Shack and Crow's Nest Pub. It's literally in our backyard, right in back of the WTAN studios at 700 Eldridge Street, just north of downtown Clearwater. Just look for the broadcast tower. Nancy's food and atmosphere get rave reviews. The laid-back patio is a great place to hang out, dine, and listen to live music at night. And Nancy's one of the friendliest proprietors in town. And now, Nancy is serving Sunday Jazz Brunch from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Brunch served with Eggs Benedict, crepes, waffles, lox and bagels, shrimp, oysters, and a build-your-own omelet. That's all at Naughty Nancy's Food Shack and Crow's Nest Pub, 700 Eldridge Street in Clearwater. That's right where Eldridge crosses the Pinellas Trail between Myrtle and Fort Harrison. Call 446-3717. 446-3717. Did you know there's a sprawling botanical paradise right in your own backyard? 
come visit Sunken Gardens. Located at 1825 4th Street North, it's St. Petersburg's oldest living museum. This 100-year-old garden is home to some of the oldest tropical plants in the region. Unwind as you stroll through meandering paths, lush with exotic plants from around the world. Explore cascading waterfalls, beautiful demonstration gardens, and more than 50,000 tropical plants and flowers. Sunken Gardens provides garden tours, horticultural programs, special events, field trips, weddings, private or corporate rentals, and much more. Call 727-551-3102 for more information. That's 727-551-3102. Sunken Gardens, 1825 4th Street North, right in the heart of Old Northeast St. Petersburg. Call 727-551-3102. Famous in the morning. Here is uh, Eddie Murphy. Hi, Eddie. <laughs> Forbes magazine said I'm the most overpaid actor. Get out of here. I played six parts in Another Professor. Just think how much money the producers would have spent if they paid me six times. In Another Professor 2, I played six parts again. That's 12 parts for two movies. 12. I tell you who's overpaid. How about Jack Black? His last name is Black, but his movie's all in red. Kristen Stewart, they gave her $30 million to look into the camera with that blank stare and take long pauses between her lines. You know why she plays a vampire? Because she's sucking all the Hollywood dry. You think I don't know what's it's all about? It's because I'm black. They should have called the article Eddie Murphy sitting on top of the world in Beverly Hills. But I guess they decided to call it Murphy Sucks because it didn't want to do Beverly Hills Cop 5. Somebody still mad from bankrolling Pluto Nash. What was I supposed to do? Somebody said, hey man, here's $20 million for this piece of crap. I said, Brandon, Monte, this is my lucky day. This is my lucky day. And I cashed the check, which got me on Forbes' other list, the richest black celebrities. <laughs> Catch Imus in the morning, right here on the stations of the Tantalk Network.